Okay, um, so let us begin um, this lecture. So, the objective as we have already discussed of the summer school is to understand the multidimensional poverty. Okay? To understand multidimensional poverty, what we will do today in two sessions, it is one continuous lecture for two sessions, two sessions we will uh, look into the unidimensional poverty. Okay? We will talk about, we will look at the measurement, we will look at the axioms, okay, and then we will look at the dominance properties. Okay. So, uh, you will receive the reading list, you probably have not received it yet, did you? Okay, so you will receive the reading list, it's, it has been emailed to you, and the main references um, for this lecture, Foster and Sen, it's a book called On Economic Inequality. Many of you probably has uh, seen that book. Then Foster 2006, Poverty Indices, provides a good description of the poverty indices and discusses the axioms. And there are other references uh, you will find from the reading list. So first we begin with preliminaries. We introduce the notations and basic concepts. Okay, so in general when we talk about poverty measurement in single dimension, more often we think about income. Okay, and in some other analysis where income is supposed to be not a reliable estimate of well-being, we use per capita expenditure. And these are the two things that we use for single dimensional analysis. Now if anyone is interested in an education dimension or dimension of health, then relevant dimensions may be used. But in general when we talk about single dimension, we talk about income and I will present this lecture using income only we will be calling it as achievement an achievement okay even if when we move to multidimensional analysis we call a person's performance in different dimensions as achievement so you will hear the term achievements many times it's a general term achievement could be income it could be performance in education it could be performance in health okay now, achievements of a society or a country can be represented by a vector or a distribution. I will show you what do you mean by vector or distribution. Whoever comes from mathematics background, statistics background, you already know what a distribution is, what a vector is. But some of you who are not, it may find it a little difficult. So bear with me, we will go slow, okay, so that all your friends, participants and members, they all understand. <coughs> And our unit of analysis, it may be individual, may be household. Okay? So, in household data, you will income in general, you have income data for household as a whole. It's really difficult to get income data for children or minor member of a household. So, in general, when you talk about per capita income, we divide the total household income by the household members and then we assume that all household members have the same share of that per capita income. Or other times we use 
equivalent scales. So we require that, uh, or we state that uh, the minors or children, they get a smaller share of that, of that income. So here is our achievement vector. So suppose there are four persons in a society with incomes so $9, $4, $15, and $8. Then we represent those four incomes by a vector called x. So x is equal to 9, 4, 15, 8, representing the incomes of the society. Now, throughout this lecture, I will give you the example of four-person <coughs> society. But that does not mean a society has to have four person. It applies to a society with one million people. Okay? But for exemplary purpose and for easiness, we will just refer to a four-person society. Then um, we come to the concept of ordered achievement vector. We will see when we uh, introduce the concept of distribution, we need to order this achievement vector. If you see the vector x, which is here, okay, they are not order. You have 9, then you have 4, then you have 15, then you have 8. Okay, they are not arranged. But here, if you see the ordered vector, we denote by x ord, where you have 4, 8, 9, and 15. So we have arranged the incomes from low to high. Now, we can use this idea of ordered vector to represent a distribution, a cumulative distribution function. Okay? Before I draw the distribution, I ask you, how many persons in the society you think has income less than four dollar? Zero. So we have here zero. How many or what is the fraction of the population having income which is greater than or equal to four but less than eight? One out of four. Okay. Now, what you see in the figure, we put the incomes. Okay. And here, I'm sorry. The function is not appearing. It's cumulative distribution. It will. It will. Bear with me. It will come slowly. Okay. So, uh, when you are asked to draw the CDF, okay, this is how the CDF looks like. Okay, for this four person vector. Do you understand how they are drawn? Mm -hmm. If you look at B less than four, you have zero. Okay, if you have between four and eight, you have this blue line is all one fourth, right? <coughs> if you are between eight and nine, then you have two fourth. Okay, you have two persons, four and eight. If you are between, say, 9 and 15, somewhere, okay, if you say what is fraction of the population less than, or say, at, say, 10, less than 10, then you have three of them, okay? So this is how a CDF, how you draw a CDF from an, from an um, ordered achievement vector. Now, for a society in general, we deal with millions of people. Okay, or if not millions, you have tens of thousands of people in a society. 
how do we draw the CDF? Now you have seen these steps in the CDF. Now when you have a huge number of uh, people in that society, then those steps becomes very, 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 very small, right? Becomes negligible. And this is how a typical CDF looks like. Okay, it's increasing always, but it's increasing at an increasing rate, and then it's decreasing. And we denote the PDF by FX. Now, what does a CDF tell us? What information does it provide? Why is it important? It shows us the share of the population having income less than a particular income level. For example, if you have FX, uh, if you have here income equal to 4, then FX4 is the share of the population having income less than $4. Okay? Afterwards, we will see that the idea of CDF is very useful in the analysis of poverty. Okay? Now, a policymaker is generally interested um, in following three aspects of a distribution or a vector. So, given the distribution of incomes in a society, a policymaker is generally interested in three different aspects. One is the size of the distribution, which we call often welfare or well being. For example, it could be per capita income it could be median income, okay? It gives you some idea about the size. The second one is the spread of the distribution. Okay, so if you have a CDF, and the CDF instead of, you know, instead of it is lying in a small interval, if it is spread, then it shows an unequal distribution of income across the population. So the second aspect that they're interested in is called spread related to inequality. And you, most of you, and I think probably all of you has come across the term Gini coefficient. Okay, Gini coefficient is a measure of inequality. We are not going to discuss in the summer school, but it's a very well-known concept. And then the third is the base of the distribution. Okay, so what a policymaker does, a policymaker says, well, let's focus on a particular group of people who require assistance instead of focusing the entire population. We'll discuss that requires setting a threshold, okay? And we are going to look at the population below that threshold because people uh, above the threshold, they may not require any assistance, okay? And then we call it poverty. Then we are interested in poverty. So there are three aspects of a distribution, size, spread, and base. So it's welfare, inequality, and poverty. So in this summer school, we will mainly focus on the third aspect. So now you know where we stand. Okay, so we will mainly be discussing the aspect of poverty. So we move into unidimensional poverty measurement. Now, unidimensional poverty measurement, as um, Sen's seminal paper shows in 1976, it involves mainly two stages. One is called identification, and the second is called aggregation. 
Okay. In identification stage, what we ask, we ask who is poor. Okay. Then we will move on to aggregation. So this step in identification stage, we dichotomize the population into two groups. One is poor, another one is non-poor. Non-poor, when we say non-poor, a policy bear may say we are not interested in non-poor because they already are self-sufficient. We are interested in poor who require our assistance for social programs, social assistance programs. The main tool that is used is poverty line. We will talk more about poverty line. <laughs> what we do, so we say person i, by the way, in a vector, for example, if you have four persons, one, two, three, four, we denote any person by i. So in a four person uh, vector, i could be anywhere between one, and one, between one and four. It could be i equal to one, two, three, four. So person i is poor if that person's income, which is denoted by x suffix i, is less than the poverty line. So if someone's income is less than the poverty line, is identified as poor. If not, then it's non-poor. Now a little bit more on poverty lines. What kind of different poverty lines we generally see? The first one is absolute poverty line. We denote it by ZA. It does not depend on the size of the entire distribution. Rather, usually based on the cost of a set of goods and services considered necessary for having a satisfactory life. Okay, so absolute distribution does not depend on the size of the distribution. What does that mean? So for a country, for example, like India or China, which is having rapid growth in income, the government might say, well, the poverty line should be equivalent to 2,100 kilocalorie of uh, equivalent of subsistence expenditure. So an expenditure that gives you, uh, that enables you to consume 2,100 calorie equivalent of um, food or basket is the poverty line. Even though the standard of living is changing, those people, when, when you are measuring that particular standard, it may seem very, very low or they are probably not changing the baskets. Okay? So it does not depend on, say, the median income or mean income of the distribution. The second one is relative poverty line, which depends on the size of the entire distribution. Suppose half of the median. So if a country is growing very fast, the median income is improving, the mean income is improving. So that means you are adjusting your poverty line. So you are identifying the poor in a relative sense, relative to the size of that distribution. Okay. And then finally, there is a concept of hybrid poverty line. Uh, Foster and then also Ravelian and Chen tried to determine a hybrid poverty line. And they say, look, absolute poverty line, I mean, whoever defends the absolute poverty line, it probably makes sense. Because what we are saying, this is the minimum amount necessary for survival. And then from other side, people are saying, look, that poverty should be a relative concept. Okay, your situation vis-a-vis -vis others in the society should matter. Then Foster and Ravelian Chin proposed we could use a hybrid poverty line, 
which is a mixed of the absolute poverty line and relative poverty line. Okay? And these are the formulations they have used. Now then the question of significance of poverty line, how important poverty line is, I mean you will see in most of the lectures about setting thresholds, this is important, if we do not have these achievements then we are deprived or poor, but how important, what is the significance of setting a poverty line? First poverty line enables policymakers to identify a group of people who are subject to different social assistance program, we call it targeting, this is the word we always use targeting. Okay? We have to target a set of poor, that's why we need to know who they are, that's why we use a threshold. And then poverty line, a policymaker thinks of a poverty line as a benchmark. Why do you set poverty line? Because you want to pull those people who are below that threshold to that threshold. Okay? So poverty line can also be seen as a benchmark. Now that benchmark allows us to make some amendment in the distribution of achievements or the vector of achievements. We call it a censored distribution of achievements. What does it mean? A censored distribution is also like a distribution or a vector, but you retain the incomes of the poor. So if a person is poor, you return that person's income in the vector, but if a person is not poor, you replace that person's income by the poverty line. Why? Because a policymaker is not interested in that additional income over the poverty line of the non-poor. Are you with me? So, we move on to the censored distribution of achievements and we will see this concept is going to be very, very useful. It will involve a lot of transformations even in multidimensional concept, uh, multidimensional context, we will see we will have different data transformations. They are going to be actually this censored distribution. Okay? We retain, we focus only on the achievements where poor or uh, where people are deprived or they are poor. We do not care when we are doing poverty analysis on those that are not deprived. If you are doing welfare, it's a completely different story. In welfare, you need to know everybody's income, everybody's achievement. Okay? For example, if we have the poverty line equal to 10, and then the achievement vector is 9, 4, 15, and 8, then the censored distribution of achievement should be <coughs> 9, 4, 10 and 8, look 15 which is above 10, right, 15 is greater than 10. So 15 is the income of the non-poor when the poverty line is set at 10. This is replaced by just 10. By the, line. by the poverty line. Because we are not interested as a policymaker of the additional <coughs> income of that non-poor. Okay, so we are saying if you have that threshold, that's enough. When we are doing welfare, for example, per capita income of a society, then a rich person's income matter. Okay, that increases the average. But when we are doing a poverty analysis, you are focusing on a particular 
group of people. Okay. <coughs> then anyone's income, if that is above poverty line, we just say, well, this person has reached uh, the threshold. So let's just treat him. He's at the threshold. That's it. Okay. So now, given that we have decided z equal to 10, okay, then this is how we create the censored vector. This, these are, that's why the, uh, is the measurement. After preliminaries is the measurement. Then we'll come to move on to axioms and measures and then dominance. Okay, so bear with me. We'll come to that point. Now, the second step of a poverty measurement is aggregation. And this step tells you how poor is a society. So in aggregation, we try to understand who is poor. We create two groups. Now, in the next stage, we need to understand how poor. What is the level of poverty? Okay? And this step is called aggregation. So this step constructs an index of poverty summarizing the information in the censored achievement vector. Okay? For each distribution x and poverty line z, Pxz or Px star indicates the level of poverty in that distribution. So when we, when we introduce the poverty measures, you will see how different measures come based on the censored distribution. For this lecture, we will adopt an absolute poverty line approach and focus the discussions in terms of the indices. Okay? So we will focus on absolute poverty line in this lecture. We are not discussing axioms and measures on relative poverty line. They can be extendable, by the way. So first, be before we talk about the poverty measures, I would like to talk a little bit about axioms or properties. When you are measuring poverty, you need to know how a poverty measure should behave. What are the transformation of a society? Because there are certain norms, right? We want under certain circumstances, under certain data transformation, we want poverty to change in a certain direction. Okay, so that's why we need to understand also the properties or axioms of poverty indices. Let's go through them first. So we will, uh, following Foster 2006 again, we will divide the axioms in mainly four broad categories. The first set of categories, uh, first set of axioms. They are called invariance axioms, which means certain type of data transformation, if we have, would leave the level of poverty unchanged. Okay? The <coughs> second set of axioms, they're called dominance axioms. Dominance axioms means if you have certain data transformations, then poverty should either increase or decrease. The third axiom is a technical axiom. I will show you, I will explain why this is important. This is a very technical axiom. And the fourth set of axioms, they are based on subgroups. They are very important for analyzing poverty across regions, okay, for policy analysis. So let's begin with the invariance axioms. 
The first invariance axiom is symmetry is also known as anonymity. It requires that if a vector is obtained vector y is obtained from vector x by a permutation of incomes the poverty line remains unchanged uh, and the poverty line remains unchanged then poverty does not change. What do we mean by permutation? The example shows that if we have the same poverty line which is at 10 look x is equal to 9 4 15 8 so the third person for example has an income of 15 and the second person has an income of 4 <coughs> if we if we had a situation where the second person had an income of 15 and the third person had an income of 4 then it should not matter so the personal identities should not matter it's an ethical assumption it can, it's an ethical axiom okay why this axiom is important for his ethical reason, for fairness issue. If you are a policymaker, you are going to treat, when you are measuring poverty, you are going to treat all your citizens as anonymous. You are not going to say, if that person has more income, I think poverty should be less, or if that poor has less income, I should have um, less poverty, something like that. So you are going to treat everybody equally, all the poor, they're it, personal identities should not matter here. If a particular person get that income, so poverty should be lower. No. Now, what is a permutation matrix? Okay, the technically, technically, what is a permutation matrix? This is how a permutation matrix looks like. It's a four by four matrix. It has a zero or one entry in each cell. Okay, such that if you take the summation of each row and summation of each column, it should sum up to 1. What it does, it takes a vector, if you multiply it by a permutation matrix, which is a square matrix as you can see, it has equal number of rows and equal number of columns. What it does, it just rearranges the income. So if we had two societies, it is as if that income has just been rearranged. Would that matter? The ethical side of it says, no, it should not matter. Whether I am poor or whether you are poor, what matters is one of, one of us is poor in that society. It does not matter exactly who is poor. Okay. The second axiom is called replication invariance or population principle. <coughs> if vector y is obtained from vector x by a replication and the poverty line remains unchanged, then poverty should not change. What do we mean by replication? It is as if, suppose I am consider this class, it is as if we create 10 clones of each of us. Okay? It is as if our incomes are just replicated or we are just replicated with the same income and same, same, um, uh, yeah, same income and same achievement. Why is this axiom important? It allows us to compare the level of poverty between two societies with different population size. If we do not have an axiom that allows you 
allows us to compare two different population size with some similarities, we cannot make any comparison. So if we have two societies, society A, we have this class suppose, society B, this class replicated five times and we are measuring poverty, we are saying should be same level of poverty. Definitely the number will be higher, no doubt. South Asia has more poor than Africa. But when we are reporting poverty, Africa is more <coughs> poor than South Asia. Okay? But number of poor is definitely more. So this is and this is an axiom, okay, this is the limit which is saying if they were as if clones, okay, then the poverty should not change. Should have the same level of poverty. Number of poor again be different. The third axiom is focus. So if y is obtained from x by an increment to a non-poor person's income, the poverty line remains unchanged. And the poverty line remains unchanged, then poverty should not change. What it is saying, if there is, if there is probably a public support program that increases the income of the non-poor, do you think poverty should change? Unless you use a relative poverty line, that's a different story. Okay, because if you use a relative poverty line, then your poverty line will change and you will find probably more poor. But we are dealing here with absolute poverty line. So if you help and support the non-poor, their income increases, and there is no increment in incomes of the poor, they remain the same, then poverty should not change. The fourth invariance axiom is called scale invariance or homogeneity of degree zero. If all incomes in vector x and the poverty line z are changed by the same proportion alpha greater than zero, then poverty should be the same. It is in the, in the example you can see that everybody's income and the poverty line has been doubled. Why is this axiom important you think? Do you buy this axiom? Do you think this axiom makes sense? Could be one. Another thing could be devaluation of uh, currency. Okay. So suppose your currency becomes half the value of its current status, then are you going to say that poverty suddenly has changed? Maybe not. Okay. So this is the importance of this axiom. <coughs> Or suppose um, you suddenly say, well, uh, instead of measuring poverty in terms of rupees, Indian rupees, why don't we uh, measure poverty in terms of dollars? Okay, so it changes all the units of measurement. Should that change poverty? No. If the poverty line is also measured in the same unit, there are changes in the same proportion. This is an axiom, this is, um, it's for simplicity, it's for better understanding for all of us. We use this axiom called normalization, which says, as long as everybody is non-poor in vector x, 
for any poverty line z, then <coughs> the poverty measure should be equal to 0. In other words, if the poverty line is set so that everybody's income is above the poverty line, then there should be no poverty in that society. It's a very simply simplifying assumption. So that you do not get a number like a poverty index is saying, like Sensex, it is saying minus 750. What does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. Okay, so what we are saying, the minimum uh, poverty index can go is zero. It cannot fall below that. It's a lower bound. <coughs> so let's move on to the dominance axioms. So, dominance axiom said if y is obtained from x by a decrement of incomes among the poor and the poverty line remains unchanged, then what do you think? Should poverty increase or decrease? You have a decrement of income among the poor. So, poor person's income went down. Do you think poverty should increase or should poverty decrease? Anything. Suppose you want forget about headcount. Any measure. What do you want? We are talking about the axioms here. We are not talking about the measures yet. Axioms are platforms before measurement. What do we want to see? No change. No change. So even if the poor becomes poorer, you don't want the poverty measure to change? Any measure, if I'm measuring society's progress, and suppose due to conflict, due to bad policy, somehow the incomes of the poor went down. Do you think poverty should remain unchanged? Should not it reflect that the situation has worsened? It should reflect it. Unless you adjust your poverty line, I don't see it. Not the poverty line. Poverty line remains same. Your poverty line remains same, but situation of poor has deteriorated. It should be reflected in the poverty measure. Poverty measure should be able to say that the situation of the poor has got worsened. This is what it's saying. So if you have a decrement of income among the poor, the poverty line remains unchanged, then P of Y should be higher than P of X. We will come to the measurement afterwards and we will see which measure satisfies which axioms. But we are at the axiom stage. So don't try to think in terms of measures. This measure would say this, this measure would say this. We'll come to that later. But what first we want to see? If we have a deterioration, the situation of the poor, then the poverty should go up. Whether headcount takes that into account or not, we will come afterwards and question each measure. Okay. So as you can see here, example, you have x equal to 9, 4, 15, and 8, and then it, it falls to 7. Then y should reflect higher poverty than in x. So the next dominance axiom is called transfer. Okay? Transfer says that if y is obtained from a progressive transfer among the poor, then poverty should fall. What do we mean by progressive transfer? By progressive transfer, we mean if income is transferred from a richer poor to a less rich poor. 
there could be different type of transfer, transfers coming from uh, the rich, okay, so non-poor to poor, but that aspect has been handled by monotonicity and focus together, okay, because if you take some money from the non-poor so that it, that person does not become poor to a poor whose income is increased, by focus, when you take that money away from the non-poor, there should not be any change in poverty. But then when you give it to the poor, the person's income has increased by monotonicity, then poverty should fall. Okay? But here, transfer is saying if income is trans, now so the, what is progressive transfer is income is transferred from a person to another person who is not richer than the former. Keeping mean income same, the transfer is called a progressive transfer. This is the definition of progressive transfer. So if you have a progressive transfer between two poor, then poverty should fall. We should have less poverty, which measure shows that, which measure reflects that situation is a different issue. We'll come to that afterwards. But this is what we want to see. So if we have two societies, instead of transferring income directly, <coughs> suppose we have two societies where the mean income among the poor, the average income among the poor is same. But in one society, probably the poor has more equal income than another society where you have marginal poor and then you have severe destitutes. If you are measuring poverty, then a poverty measure should reflect that situation. Okay? The example, for example, you have uh, Z equal to here. I am using Z and Z simultaneously. Sorry about that. I did my uh, PhD for six years in the US, so I have got that habit of calling Z but then I moved to the UK for the last one and a half year, so I'm still in the transition of using Z and Z. Because please forgive me, I should stick to one. I know. You should put Z equals Z. Z equals Z. Put somewhere. <laughs> yes, it's a good suggestion. Um, so you have, let's say, Z now. Z is ten, which is poverty line. And now suppose we have X as nine, four, fifteen, and eight. But why we have 9 and 15, but there has been a transfer of income from this poor with income 8 to this poor with income 4, and it has become 5 and 7. Okay? So poverty should be lower in the second society. In why? Because you have a transfer of income from a richer poor to a poorer poor. You, do not, you may not have to take that income directly and give it to someone. But suppose we have two societies like that hypothetical societies, then Y should have less poverty than X, should reflect. So what we are looking at here, as I told you, is there are different types of data transformation and how these different types of data transformation should affect poverty. Okay, and then we will choose a measure. We cannot just go ahead and use any one measure. Just like headcount, for example, we will see the limitations of headcount. Okay, so we have to first understand what we are trying to measure, then we will choose a poverty measure accordingly. This is the way to go. Not like take seven measures and see which poverty has increased or not, and you don't know exactly what is going on inside. This is not the way to go. Okay, so you need to understand the properties of the measures. <coughs> Now, uh, when we are talking about transfer, is there a limit on the amount of transfer in these axioms? Suppose you are transferring 
money from a richer poor to a poorer poor and I am saying due to this transfer poverty should fall. Is there any limit in that amount of transfer? Can we just transfer any amount from them? What we are saying you should not, the transfer should not be so large that the richer person's income after the transfer becomes less than the poorer person's income before transfer. What if that happens? Suppose income, suppose someone's income was 5, someone's income was 15. You make the transfer, you transfer 10 dollars from that richer person to a poorer person. So now the richer person in post transfer situation has an income of 5, the poorer has 15. Should that decrease or increase your poverty? Anonymity says no, poverty should not change. Okay? And what if $11 is transferred from the richer to the poorer? That means whoever was richer with $15 has an income of $4 now. Okay? And the poorer has an income of $16 now. What happened here? So you actually, if you use anonymity and monotonicity together, you will see there has been actually a regressive transfer. Okay? So there is a limit of the transfer. So your transfer should not be such that the richer person's income should fall below or become equal to the income of the post pre-transfer income of the poor. Okay. Now um, a question that is often asked, what is the implication of this axiom for non-transferable dimensions? For example, someone is interested in single dimension but instead of income uses education. So now as if you are saying take someone's one year of education and give it to someone else. But that does not really make sense, does it? But the way we see it is as if you are comparing two societies. You are comparing, comparing two societies as if that could be possible. That is not possible in reality but suppose you consider two societies, two persons each. In one society, just a minute, I will, I will come back to that question. Suppose in one society you have someone having an education of 23 years and an education of 5 years and then you have another society with two persons having income of 14 years, both. Okay? So the education in the second society is more equal. It is, it is not like you obtained this society from the other society taking the score sheets away from a person so that you, you show. You cannot take knowledge that way as you can take income. But we can use the transfer axiom while comparing two different societies, whether one society is more equal or less equal. Okay, but we still call it transfer. I mean, we could give a different name, uh, equalization assumption or something like that. But we keep transfer because we are talking about income. Okay, so but don't get confused that always for the non-transferable dimensions you have to take someone's knowledge or health and give it to someone else. You cannot do that. Now, uh, the next axiom um, I mentioned in the list of four, four set of axioms is continuity. It's a technical assumption. What it says intuitively, it prevents poverty measures from changing abruptly for changes in distribution of achievements. 
Okay. What do we do? Suppose we have a distribution x prime which is 9, 4, 15 and 8 and the poverty line is z. And suppose the income of the poorest person with uh, income dollar 4 is increased gradually. By h I mean headcount, I will introduce it later, but headcount means counting the number of the poor and dividing it by the population. You all have heard about headcount ratio. Headcount ratio, count the number of the poor divided by the population. It's the ratio of the population, a proportion of the population that is poor. Okay, we denote it by h. Now, you can see given the poverty line z equal to 10, when the income is changing gradually from 4 to 10, it becomes 4 to 5, no change in headcount. 5 to 6, no change in headcount. 6 to 7, no change in headcount. You have to wait until the income goes to 10. Then only you will see some change in headcount. Is that something desirable? Maybe not. Okay, so continuity says that your measure should be such that even if you have a small change in poor's income, the poverty measure should reflect that. A poverty measure, I say, should reflect that. If a poverty measure does not reflect that, it's not continuous. Okay. Then we move on to subgroup axioms. They are important for policy analysis. We suppose the population size of vector x is denoted by nx. So instead of taking an example of 4 or 6 or 7, I will present an example below. But in general term, you can say the population of vector x or distribution x is denoted by nx. It could be 100 million. Vector x is divided into two population subgroups, x prime with population denoted by nx prime and x double prime with population size n double prime. Uh, so it's nx, the total population in x is equal to the population in subgroup x prime plus the population in subgroup x double prime. Okay? So you divide the total population, the divide the total population into two groups, x prime and x double prime. And these x prime and x double prime are called subgroups. Right. So for example, if you have x equal to 4, 9, 15, and 8, and you have x prime equal to 9 and 4, x double prime equal to 15 and 8, then you have total population as 4, nx prime having a population of 2, nx double prime has a population of 2. So you are dividing the entire population into two different subgroups. Now we have two axioms um, based on the subgroups. The first axiom is known as subgroup consistency. Consistency of what? What it says that if the poverty, intuitively, if the poverty in one subgroup has gone up and the poverty in another subgroup remains the same, then what do you think? What should happen to the overall poverty? Increase? This is what we expect, right? Now, if we have um, these subgroups, they can be extended to hundreds. For example, if you are talking about Pakistan, you have four provinces, you have four subgroups, 
okay in india if we are talking about caste okay we may have different four different subgroups okay so if you had a situation like um, your poverty in pakistan suppose the poverty in punjab province has gone down poverty in other three provinces has not changed okay and suddenly you see there is an increase in overall poverty how do you feel as a policymaker i have worked hard to reduce poverty in some place but then overall i see an increase in poverty some measures of poverty can do that so you use the poverty you see there's overall poverty has increased but then when you go to subgroup you see a completely different result it has gone down so to avoid that uh, inconsistency uh, this action is important okay so suppose for example here um, z equal to 10 x equal to 9 4 15 8 x prime equal to 9 4 and x double prime is equal to 15 and 8 now y prime is suppose obtained from x prime such that y prime is equal to 6 4 if you compare x prime and y prime the first person's income in that subgroup has gone down suppose while uh, y double prime is obtained from x prime such that they're equal no change okay then py prime should have y prime should have more poverty any measure okay which satisfies the action should reflect so if you have more poverty here and then you have same poverty here then overall you should have an increase in poverty and not a decrease now people sometimes ask which practical reason may this action be important i have already told you why this is important from a policymaker's point of view you really do not want such inconsistent results or situation so it's evaluation of poverty reduction programs of course as i told you suppose in pakistan you have reduction in poverty at one place <laughs> then overall you see an increase you do not want that and also it is some some sort of it's a similar idea as monotonicity you are looking a group and you are saying if groups income overall or groups poverty increases then that should be reflected in overall poverty it's like a monotonicity axiom but keep in mind that groups increase in poverty could be obtained by both increase and decrease in incomes of the poor okay it's groups when you are con considering a group it could have obtained and not everyone's every person's income has gone up probably in that group okay but as as a group when we see a group's poverty when it goes up it should be reflected in the overall poverty additive decomposability what it does additive decomposability would allow you to present a poverty measure in this way so the poverty measure which is the overall poverty p should be decomposed into poverty of a subgroup times the population share plus poverty in subgroup double prime times the population share this is a way of waiting what you do you are then able to calculate the contribution of each group which is denoted by cx cx prime here for uh, group x prime so contribution of that group to total poverty it is also very important when you are analyzing poverty over time this state you will see for mpi when we calculated for undp we calculated which states or which ethnic groups were contributing more towards 
the overall poverty. Okay, that way policymaker can decide which state or which group, population subgroup require more assistance. Now additive decomposability implies subgroup consistency, but the converse is not true. There are measures that are not additively decomposable, but they give you consistent result. So additive decomposability is very easy to see. If you have such kind of representation where everything is positive, if you have increase in here, you must have increase in overall poverty given this is same. Okay? But not all subgroup consistent measure can be represented this way. So additive decomposability implies subgroup consistency, but not the other way out. So this is a theorem from Foster and Sherrock. It's a theoretical result. If P is continuous subgroup consistent poverty index, if and only if P is a poverty measure, poverty index is continuous and increasing transformation of a continuous and decomposable poverty index. So the final axiom, I wrote other advanced axioms, but there is only one axiom that I will talk about. This is a really advanced axiom. And most of the usual poverty measures that we work with, they don't satisfy the axiom. Okay, then the mathematical formulation of an index will become very difficult. So the idea is that if, suppose you have this situation. Let me give you this example. Suppose the poverty line in India is 10,000 rupees per year, Indian rupees. Okay? If, you are, if someone is earning less than 10,000 rupees per year, that person is identified as poor. Now, suppose transfer of say 5 rupees or 100 rupees, 100 rupees takes place between two persons having an income of one rupee per year, which is highly unlikely, but suppose one rupee per year and 250 rupee per year. A transfer takes place between them. One rupee per year means the person doesn't have almost any income. Okay, and if you give 100 rupees, means a lot. Also now suppose a transfer takes place between two persons having incomes 9,500 rupees and 9,700 rupees. Okay? So if you transfer an income, take away income of 100 rupees from a person who is already earning 9,700 rupees and give a person to 9, 000, who is earning 9,500 rupees, it should not matter that much. So same amount of transfer is taking place among two richer poor same amount of transfer is taking place among two severe poor. If you take away 100 rupees out of the 250 rupees, calculate yourself what fraction of income you are taking out. So it's the same amount, we are already discussing about it earlier, right? Like translation invariance, whether it should matter you increase the same proportion or by same amount. So here you are transferring same amount, but it means a lot to poorer people than to richer people. Transfer sensitivity is saying that if such a transfer, a progressive transfer takes place at the lower end of the distribution, it should have more impact on the poverty measure than if the same transfer had taken place to richer person. 
it comes from the idea of just inequality measurement and inequality if you just transfer 5 dollar between a population between two person earning 5 million and 6 million rupees it makes hardly any difference but if you do the same transfer having who is earning a 30 dollar or uh, 40 dollars transferring 5 dollars makes a huge difference okay so this is transfer sensitivity is all about i am not going to the mathematical details of transfer sensitivity not going to complicate um, things that much. When we resume, we will move on to poverty measures and um, dominance analysis.